Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. This morning on the Thursday Morning Report, I'll be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I'll be speaking first with our own Tom Wadeski from Corporations and Democracy about the recent corporate tax rallies held around the county. And then uh, about quarter past, I'll be speaking with uh, Cal Berkeley Professor Barry Eichengreen, uh, author of Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar and Future of the International Monetary System. We'll be discussing uh, the recent conference at Bretton Woods uh, sponsored by jo- uh, George Soros, revamping the international monetary system. Uh, we're going to start the show off by speaking with KZYX's own Tom Modeski. Let me just tell everyone the time is 9.06, so we're just kicking in the show here. And uh, let me make sure Tom is here. Tom. I'm here, Doug. Oh, excellent. A little bit loud, but uh, we got you. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll tame down. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll pot you down. That'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, how's it going today? Well, pretty good. I'm definitely worked up. I've been doing reading some more just to be prepared for this uh, interview with you today about yeah. how the giant corporations have been able to reduce their tax load tremendously. Right. And, um, I mean, there's just scores of corporations, huge ones, that didn't pay any taxes in the last few years, like ExxonMobil, General Electric, Chevron, Boeing, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup. Um, and uh, definitely Bank of America was right among the top of them. And of all those big corporations, that's the one we have branches of here in Mendocino. So people who are fed up with this uh, corporate rule and the way they're giving all the benefits to the very wealthy and the giant corporations and shifting the tax burden onto us, we got to do something with this frustration. So last Friday, uh, there was a demonstration at the Bank of America in Fort Bragg and also in Ukiah. And then Monday, which was the official tax day, uh, we had one in Mendocino, I mean in Fort Bragg at the Bank of America branch there too. So people are getting more upset. I mean, I think a lesson we're learning getting inspired by the changes in the Arab world and Egypt and Tunisia that change is only going to happen when people do get in the streets. And so the last few tax years, I don't think there were any protests, but this year there were protests um, Monday in over 300 cities around the country. And like I said, three of them here in Mendocino County. So, and that's kind of a first. So people are beginning to get mobilized, and that's a real encouraging sign. So, um, and just for Bank of America, uh, just 
a couple basic statistics. I don't want to do much with statistics, but they are pretty daunting because the B of A did make over $4.4 billion in profits last year, and yet they paid no income tax. Uh, and this was after receiving $1 trillion of our taxpayers' money and the Federal Reserve and Treasury uh, bailouts. And they also got a $1.9 million tax refund from the IRS. And yet they paid no taxes. Wow. And a lot of people, you know, how do they do that? Well, they have <clears throat> one reason is that they have 115 overseas tax, overseas tax havens. And that's, you know, Doug, that they, just the corporations now have just poured so much money into Congress, both in lobbyists and in election funds, that they are writing the rules, and they are running the country, and so they write rules that say, that make these these uh, overseas tax havens totally legal, and that reduce their rates year after year, the corporate, you know, rates drop. Uh, in 1961, corporations paid 47% of their profits were paid in taxes, and by 2011, this year, it's down to 11%. So a drop from 47 to 11% is all they're paying in taxes now. And so we've seen a huge shift in the tax burden from the corporations and, and really even the wealthiest, you know, 1% of Americans uh, now to uh, uh, the, the middle class and uh, even the, the upper middle class really still pays huge amounts of their income in taxes. And the working class, yeah, you're right, the burden, yeah, the corporations can reduce their share from 47 to 11%. And the super, you're right, the super wealthy, there's articles that show that they're paying every year less and less. So definitely it's on our backs. And that has fueled, like, the Tea Party's anger at taxes. But they are, unfortunately, have been co-opted by the Republicans, which is the main party that has reduced the taxes on the giant corporations and on the super wealthy. And so uh, the, they're being directed to, to reduce expenditures for social needs for poor people for for developing jobs for alternative energy instead of saying simply raise the taxes on the super wealthy and the giant corporations yeah it is amazing this this no tax uh, thing that the republicans have going on even as even as uh, governments on the federal and state level are, are practically uh, on in the in the plane of of defaulting on uh, their debt burden uh, just uh, tax raising taxes on these on these the few the largest uh, profit makers in the country uh, off the table for the republicans they're not talking about it at all you're dead right on that. And unfortunately, Doug, even in President Obama's budget, uh, he is going to keep in place the Reagan era and the Bush era tax cuts. Hmm. And he is not talking about raising taxes, well, or not much, on the, the corporate sector and the super wealthy. He would keep taxes around 20% of GDP. So, uh, but there is a there is a bright light here in that there <clears throat> there is a people's budget which was developed by the Progressive Caucus, and that is in Congress. There are eighty members of a Congressional Progressive Caucus, which you know, uh, and they are the only ones that have come for a plan that says yes, definitely increase the taxes on the wealthy. 
So there, there will be a bill. There are 80 members, which is sizable, but, of course, it's not big enough in a, what, a 435-member House to uh, get it passed. But at least there, we do have a voice in Congress saying, yes, we must raise taxes and we must keep the you know, human services and keep a humane, just, fair uh, budget and not the ones that the Republicans or the Democrats are proposing. One of the things you mentioned right at the beginning was that uh, oftentimes, I think a lot of people have this vision in their minds that they send a, a congressman to Congress and the, these Congress people are, are busy writing the laws. But actually, it is uh, commonly the case that corporate lawyers come to the congressman with the laws already written, and then they lobby the Congress to go ahead and pass the laws that these corporations, these laws that the corporate lawyers have put forth, which are obviously promoting the corporate interests. Yeah, Can yeah, you, that's... Explain a little bit about that, and, and this is the reason, I think, why we've seen uh, this tax burden shifted so profoundly since the 60s. Yeah, it's just, it has been growingly evident that um, money is playing such a huge role, and the Supreme Court made a decision a year and a quarter ago that said uh, that even opened the five conservatives on the Supreme Court, uh, overruled the four liberals, and said uh, we really... They, the conservatives said, we do not have, we cannot restrict the corporation's right of free speech and money of speech, and uh, therefore they get to give even more money, and they are giving lots more money, and they're making, uh, you know, big, huge donations to congressmen. So, so a congressman has to get elected every two years, Doug. So that means, and now it's getting so that they've got to have multi-millions in their campaigns to run. So they're dialing for dollars every day, every hour nearly. They've got to keep their eye on how am I going to get enough money to run against somebody. And they get that money by doing the favors that the money wants, and that is lower the taxes on the corporations and give them tax breaks of all kinds, and as well as, you know, passing um, NAFTA-type things for globalization, which was promised to bring jobs to America. And, of course, we saw that they've uh, wiped out our, jo our, judges, our, our jobs. Right. Yeah, the funny, funniest thing to me about NAFTA, it's always promoted as a free market thing, but actually very often, uh, if you read NAFTA, it's just specific corporations that get big boosts and, and uh, special exemptions, et cetera, et cetera, to help them out. But uh, it's not, a, you, you know, specifically they target these corporations, so the corporations get these great deals internationally. It's not really about, uh, you know, helping the mom and pop businesses on the borders in terms of free trade. It's just funny the way that they promote it uh, so that the Republicans or, or whoever will say, hey, it's all about free market. Uh, but then actually it seems to me like they're fixing the market uh, for the benefit of only these few very large corporations. Yeah, that's true. And unfortunately it wasn't just Republicans. Clinton right. era brought us in the, yeah. uh, the globalization wave and, and again promising jobs and they, we just lost them. We did not gain them. So we can't believe what they say. So, uh, but back to that core issue is we've got to find a way to get money out of politics. And we've, we're doing something about that on the grassroots level here on that, too. Um, <clears throat> there, all, you know, throughout the last hundred years, there have been attempts to get money out of politics, trying to limit how much corporations can give, and that works moderately well until the Supreme Court even overturned that January of last year. So... Um, 
And the way they could overturn that is by saying corporations are have the rights of people, they have personhood, and they have the rights to free speech and rights to, to uh, you know, not be, uh, you can't just go on to a corporate property and inspect safety regulations or pollution standards because they have personal rights, and there's all kinds of constitutional rights that corporations are now claiming and being validated. So there is a movement nationwide called Move to a amend.org, where you want to amend the U.S. Constitution to say that corporations are not people and do not have the rights of personhood. And we, and on the coast here, uh, took uh, a resolution to the Fort Bragg City Council a couple months ago, and then it went through there, and 15 of us gave the reasons why it would help Fort Bragg locally to uh, ban this concept of corporate personhood. And uh, they did pass it 4-0 with one absence. Um, and we're now, there are people in Ukiah and Willits that are going to propose it to their city council, and we may make them a county ballot initiative out of two. It's both a good way to educate that, you know, if we want to make the change, if we want to end this corporate domination of our whole country and our government, uh, we have to do something about it, and this is one way, and it's a movement across the nation. There are scores of towns and that have passed it, like Richmond and Berkeley and Santa Cruz, and but all across the nation it's happening. That, uh, And we just need people to help make it happen in Willits and Ukiah and Pointerina, the other cities, and then in the county. Yeah, very good, Tom. I've often, uh, you know, so many of us, we follow national politics, but then you get, uh, it's easy anyway to get very frustrated because uh, at least I, and I know a lot of people that call up open lines, uh, feel like they can't affect what's going on in Washington, D.C., but a lot of people, I think, don't realize how much power we have in our city governments and county governments, that we can go directly to our local government, make changes here, and, uh, uh, you know, and then the federal government's going to have to sue us if they if they want to force us to fall in line with what they're doing, and, and that doesn't often happen. And, and really, um, just because of the way the laws are constructed, uh, I think the county and the city governments have more power than people realize. We don't just have to do what the what the federal government tells us to do. Right. You're definitely right about that. And it's partly because the local, go- I mean, our Fort Bragg City Council and all the city councils, they do not have lots of uh, big corporate money right. <laughs> filling their coffers, <laughs> so they are free to serve the people. And that's the difference. And we need to get our national government back to that, where those representatives serve us instead of the, the people who give them money to stay in their jobs. All right. Very good, Tom. Um, thank you for your work. I've got to move on to uh, my next guest. But uh, can you uh, tell us anything about maybe some future plans or uh, where people can contact uh, and get some contact information for people who want to become more active on a local level and, and go ahead and pursue some of these ideas here with what you've been working on? Yes. Uh, like I said, move to amend. Dot org is a good place to look at it. Uh, the nationwide campaign, they have a map of all the towns that have passed it. And, and, uh, but also people are welcome to contact me, even if you're in Willits or Ukiah or Point Arena, anywhere in the county, and I will plug you in to how you could fit into this effort to try to get go to the root of the problem and get rid of this corporate personhood so we can limit corporate power. My name is Tom Wodetsky, and you can reach me either at 937-1113 or at tw at 
mcn.org. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. I really appreciate uh, spending a few minutes here at the beginning of the show to fill us in on what's been going on and uh, what you've been doing uh, in terms of educating people about uh, the, the corporate power uh, at work in the federal government and the lack of taxation that they've been paying over the course of the last uh, few years. Glad to do it with you, Doug. All right. Cheers. Okay. Have a good morning. All right, that was Tom Wodeski uh, from KZYX's Corporations and Democracy, uh, just giving a, a bit of an update on uh, what's going on here locally with uh, the corporate tax issue. So uh, thanks, Tom, for being on the show for, for me. And I will give uh, Professor Barry Eichengreen from University of California at Berkeley a call, and we will be discussing uh, international economics, what's happening with the dollar, and uh, what's happening with the dollar's status as the world Reserve Currency and the recent Bretton Woods Conference sponsored by George Soros that is uh, radically changing the way international finance will be done. Uh, I've got uh, Professor Barry Eichengreen on the phone here. Professor, are you there? I'm here. All right, very good. I just want to uh, say Professor Eichengreen is the party professor of economics and political science at the University of California at Berkeley. He's the author of several books, including Golden Fetters, The Gold Standard and the Great Depression, Globalizing Capital, Imbalances, and the Lessons of Bretton Woods, and uh, his most recent book, Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar and Future of the International Monetary System. He's also been a senior advisor uh, for the International Monetary Fund. Uh, so, Professor Eichengreen, how are you doing this morning? Uh, very well. We were up in Mendocino last weekend. I miss it already. Nice. Yeah, it's beautiful up here. All right. Uh, can you just say for uh, uh, our audience members who don't know the history uh, of the first Bretton Woods, uh, what happened? That was in 1945, I believe. Uh, what happened and how did it affect uh, the, the international uh, financial system at the time? The story starts during World War II when um, the U.S. And, and U.K. governments in particular um, began to think about how to organize the post, uh, post-war world and how to organize it monetarily and financially in particular. Um, there were two uh, great thinkers, John Maynard Keynes, the uh, British economist who worked for the U.K. Treasury during the war, um, Harry Dexter White, an American uh, economist who worked for the, for the U.S. Treasury. Um, they had competing plans. Those uh, uh, competing visions of how to organize the post-world, uh, post-war world were hashed out at uh, the Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, in 1944. Um, Forty-four countries uh, came together, and they agreed on creating the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and uh, uh, a system of pegged but uh, adjustable exchange rates that came to be called the Bretton Woods system. And how uh, how has this affected the U.S. dollar over the course of the last 50 years or so? The U.S. dollar was at the, uh, the center of the Bretton Woods system. Mm-hmm. Uh, effectively, what happened was that every other country pegged its uh, own currency to the dollar at a fixed uh, rate of exchange, and that system where the dollar was basically the global currency, the reference currency for other monies worldwide, um, prevailed from 1944 until 1971. 
so that uh, agreement was part of what made the the dollar not only our currency but the world's the, the currency used for foreign exchange trading, international investment, uh, international trade settlements, uh, and the like, something that has pretty much continued down to the present day. So there are a lot of dollars out there in the world now that are being used to trade for basically com- you know, commodities around, around the globe. Um, what happens if that, if that system is weakened? What happens when the dollar uh, suddenly stops being that world reserve currency? The, uh, the fact that the dollar has been uh, the, the, the world's currency for the last half century, I think, has been both uh, a good and a bad thing for the United States. Mm-hmm. It's been a good thing in that it has been convenient for U.S. banks and, and, and firms and, and tourists abroad to be able to do business uh, in our own currency. Um, we don't, U.S. companies and banks don't have to change money, uh, don't have to incur the cost and bear the risk um, of using someone else's currency when, when they import and export and do international business. From that point of view, the world is going to become a more complicated place for them when uh, the euro and China's currency are widely used for international transactions. At the same time, I think the world is going to become a a safer financial place that uh, we have had the problem that when the U.S. uh, becomes prone to financial excesses, when we engage in frenzied real estate speculation as we did before 2007, Foreigners uh, give us more rope with which to hang ourselves. They lend to us freely because they're, uh, they want to accumulate our dollars for use in international transactions. In the future, they're going to have alternatives. So um, the U.S. will feel the, the discipline of the markets earlier and more regularly. I think that'll be a good thing. Well, that's the way that it's been explained to me. Most currencies have to, they want to uh, remain strong against the dollar. If they have a weak currency against the dollar and then they want to go and they want to buy oil from Saudi Arabia or something and they have to buy dollars and their currency is weak against the dollar, uh, then they don't have a lot of purchasing power. Whereas the United States, we, we don't have to care about the dollar value because a dollar's worth a dollar on the international market, and we can go to Saudi Arabia, and we're going to spend our dollars for, for their oil, and it's going to cost X number of dollars. Yeah, so um, the way I think about it is that um, foreign central banks and governments want dollars. They, they want them because they're uh, convenient for doing international business, and they want them as, a, as an insurance policy, that when things go wrong in financial markets, it, it's... Uh, valuable to have dollar liquidity because so many financial transactions are, in fact, done in dollars. That means that um, when we import BMWs, uh, we can pay for them by exporting green pieces of paper that don't cost us very much to uh, produce. That means that U.S. living standards are higher than than they would be uh, otherwise. We can consume more than uh, we would we would be able to do otherwise. I, I, I do think, therefore, that as the world moves away from using only dollars for 
international transactions, um, um, Americans will feel it in the pocketbook that U.S. consumption standards will be modestly lower than they would be otherwise. Well, we're likely to see some inflation as a result. Is that correct? Uh, a lot of these dollars might end up heading back to the United States if they're not being spent uh, internationally. Well, if if foreigners decide that that they're uh, they've satisfied their appetite for dollars and, and they don't want to uh, accumulate more of them, what they have been accumulating in in practice has been U.S. Treasury bonds. Right. If and they stop buying, uh, U.S. interest rates are are, are going to be higher. And that will have uh, a whole series of implications for U.S. economic growth. You know, investment by companies becomes more expensive for the U.S. budget deficit, uh, paying the debt service. Uh, the interest on, on the debt will become more expensive. Uh, so, yes, uh, um, Americans are going to have to tighten their belts. And this is what we're seeing now. The Chinese were heavily investing in U.S. Treasury bonds. I think a lot of people know about that. And they are slowing down that trend, which is making it difficult uh, for the U.S. to maintain that, that debt status. They, so uh, you used the right language. Uh, they are slowing down. Right. Um, they're still running external surpluses. They still have to park all their foreign earnings somewhere. And at the moment, there are not a lot of uh, attractive alternatives to the dollar. So mm -hmm. uh, they haven't stopped buying, but uh, they have slowed down, and they're actively looking to diversify their holdings. They're actively looking for uh, alternatives. I think, for example, when uh, Europeans uh, succeed in solving their problems, uh, the euro will become a more attractive uh, alternative to the dollar, and, and the Chinese will look to Europe. And the Chinese are pushing to make their own currency uh, more of a, a world reserve currency now. Is that right? That, that is right. So they understand that it's uh, uh, an advantage for U.S. Uh, firms and banks to be able to do international business in dollars, mm -hmm. in their own currency. They similarly want uh, Chinese banks and firms to be able to do international business in their own currency, the, the renminbi. So in the last two years, um, the share of China's foreign trade done in the country's own currency has gone up from zero to about 7%. So 7% is still a, a, a small fraction, but you can see the trend. It, it is happening. Right. They, they've started doing business with the Russians, I think, in the renminbi. Is that correct? With the Russians, with the Brazilians, mm -hmm. with a lot of their neighboring Asian countries. They are encouraging companies like McDonald's and Caterpillar to issue uh, international bonds in Hong Kong, uh, in China's currency. So there is a lot of movement to encourage the international use of, of the renminbi. And so we get to the latest conference, the new Bretton Woods conference. What, is, uh, what has been transpiring there? How did that come about? I, I know I've read that George Soros was really influential in putting this together. He sees that the international system is not functioning uh, currently, uh, as the, the recent crisis has uh, made pretty clear. And now he wants to make a change. And from what I've seen, he, he really admires the Chinese system. Well, so the, the, the Bretton Woods conference uh, of two weeks ago was 
um, a, a combination of, of different ideas uh, coming together in one place. Um, Soros has put together something called the Institute of New Economic Thinking to try to encourage uh, more relevant, less doctrinaire economic research in universities uh, in particular. So one thing that happened at Bretton Woods is that a lot of people involved in that institute came together to brainstorm. In addition, uh, Soros uh, and a lot of the people around him are concerned about the future of the international monetary and financial system and, and the role of the dollar. That second concern, I think, is what motivated them to hold this meeting at the Mount Washington Hotel, the venue of the historic 1944 meeting. So half of what happened at the conference two weeks ago was brainstorming about new economic thinking and how, how Soros' foundation was, was working, how it could be made to work better. The other half was to think about the, uh, the future of the international monetary and financial system. So there, were, there was lots of conversation in, in the ballroom, lots of conversation in the hallways, but about two very different topics. I see. Well, so what's been all, uh, just to go back, also there's the, the World Bank is talking about creating its own currency that could be used as a world reserve currency. That's correct, isn't it? It's the International Monetary Fund, the other okay. uh, sister institution uh, to the World Bank created at, at Bretton Woods. Um, so in 1944, Keynes had the idea that uh, the International Monetary Fund should be authorized to create uh, an international unit that would be used for trade settlements and in transactions between governments. But the U.S. didn't go along because uh, we saw the, uh, the dollar as the incumbent uh, international currency and didn't want to authorize the, uh, the creation of an alternative. Sure, because then we would have had to have had that financial discipline that you were talking about if we had to, if we had to peg the dollar to an international currency. I exactly so. Um, but as time went on and doubts developed about the... Um, uh, the, 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 the future and about the stability of the dollar. The IMF was eventually um, authorized to create on a very small scale uh, an accounting unit that governments uh, that belong to the fund are obligated to accept in, in transactions with one another. So that unit has the name Special Drawing Rights, and there are um, billions of them out there. Hmm. There have been three rounds, I think, of um, uh, issuance uh, to the members, including the United States, of these special drawing rights or SDRs. Right. One idea that uh, people have about what should come next after the age of uh, global dollar dominance is to replace uh, the dollar on the international stage with these SDRs. I'm skeptical. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. But there was a lot of uh, discussion of that possibility two weeks ago at Bretton Woods. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of the doom and gloomers out there that that don't, that uh, perceive that the, suddenly the SDR is going to replace the dollar. There's going to be some kind of a crash of the dollar. Uh, but what you're saying is that you see a kind of a, a mix that there might be some the renminbi, uh, the euro, maybe some SDR, a combination of currencies that will replace the dollar as the world reserve currency. Right. Um, I don't think that. Um, SDRs are going are to be created big time and uh, be allowed to replace the dollar in international transactions because the U.S. Congress would not go for it, um, because the issuer, the International Monetary Fund, would not be given the powers of a global central bank. It's more rea realistic, I think, to um, think about a world 10 years from now in which there are three big uh, economies, the U.S., Euroland, uh, and China, and each of their three currencies is widely used in international transactions. I think there's uh, a logic for that, three big uh, economies and, and three global currencies. I also think that this will ultimately make for a, a safer financial world. Because, again, uh, if one of these three countries uh, uh, shows signs of not living uh, within its means, if one of these three big economies falls prey to financial excesses, uh, international investors, central banks, governments, and private uh, investors will have uh, alternatives. All right, let me take a quick station break. The time is 9.39. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking with Professor Barry Eichengreen of the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, we're talking about international finance, the dollar as the, the, hit, the future of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, uh, and the most recent Bretton Woods Conference and the ideas that are coming out of that for uh, what's going to happen um, in terms of international finance here in the next 10 years. We've got about 20 minutes left in the program. I'll go ahead and open up the lines. If anyone has a question for my guest this morning, please give me a call, 895-2448. We'll get you in the studio here. So please give us a call if you have a question. Uh, and when you're talking about kind of these financial excesses, now that the Chinese are slowing down on buying treasury bonds, we're finding this quantitative easing going on by the Treasury Department. Um, is that, would you consider that to be a, a, an excess? <laughs> uh, this is when instead of lending money, they just print it and spend it here. They're, they're not lending it out to the Chinese or, or to other countries or, or, or in the form of treasury bonds. They're just printing it and then spending it. Is that correct? Well, it's uh, the, uh, the Fed that has been doing the quantitative easing, um, mm -hmm. keeping interest rates low in part by uh, buying treasury bonds. Um, I think that uh, has been necessary because the economy is, has been weak and uh, the economy has needed all the support uh, um, it can get, whether from uh, um, the Congress and, and the executive branch in the, in the form of fiscal stimulus, or from the Fed in, in, in terms of doing whatever it takes to um, keep interest rates low. But hopefully we're, we're coming out slowly but surely from those uh, economic hard times. And as the economy strengthens, um, those policies are not going to be appropriate anymore. The Fed is going to have to exit from quantitative easing. 
and we're going to have to address the, uh, the budget deficit problem. Well, because uh, as they make more and more dollars uh, via the the quantitative easing, doesn't isn't this going to come back uh, to the to the in terms of a weak dollar? It's going to cause more inflation here at home eventually, isn't it? Well, it it will if they don't reverse out what they've done. Right. Uh, in principle, the Fed has all the tools to undo uh, QE two to reverse out the liquidity injections that. Uh, uh, it has made to sell the treasury bonds that it has purchased. So technically, uh, there's no obstacle to preventing that inflation, to, um, you know, reversing the actions that have been taken in the last couple of years. Politically, on the other hand, it, it may be difficult. So if we get inflation, uh, it will not be a, a result of the economic actions, uh, I think, taken since 2007, it'll be a result of political pressure from uh, Capitol Hill uh, or wherever that prevents the Fed from turning off the taps uh, at the right time. Because they would basically they would have to stop uh, the quantitative easing and they would have to raise interest rates probably substantially to slow down the flow of money into the economy. Is that correct? Uh, they would have to, and, and doing that uh, could be bad for investment if the economy is still weak. Mm-hmm. Doing that could make the budget deficit problem even worse because um, servicing the, the public debt will become more expensive. So let's talk about uh, the financial crisis and why it happened and why George Soros uh, wanted to have this new, wants to revamp the system. Is there something wrong with the, the International Monetary Fund right now that created the, the problems that we're having? Uh, and, and why does it need to be changed? Well, uh, in a nutshell, I, I would say there were um, three causes uh, of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. The fundamental cause was that we didn't regulate our, we, we deregulated too fast and we didn't supervise our, our financial institutions and markets adequately. Dodd-Frank uh, is part of the effort to fix that problem. Secondly, uh, I think Mr. Greenspan kept interest rates too low for too long between 2003 and 2005, and hopefully we've learned uh, a lesson from that, and uh, Fed policy will be better in the future. But third, uh, there was the problem of global imbalances and uh, the fact that uh, the Chinese and others lent to us so freely that made interest rates uh, in the U.S. lower even than they would have been otherwise. Hmm. That helped fuel the, the housing bubble. And it made the crash when it came, starting in, in 2007, uh, even even more dramatic than it, it would have been otherwise. So the third problem that needs to be fixed is, is that problem of global imbalances, that the Chinese are always running external surpluses, we in the United States are always running external deficits and that we don't get the international uh, adjustment or rebalancing that both the surplus uh, and the deficit countries need. Um, Last weekend in Washington, D.C., there was uh, the spring meeting of the International Monetary Fund and the group of 20 uh, countries and they agreed on, on a set of formulas, a uh, set of indicators that would 
identify when these uh, international imbalance problems grew serious. Basically, green lights, yellow lights, and and flashing red lights for countries that were not uh, adjusting. So, agreement on indicators is progress, but there's still no no agreement on who's going to do what when when the caution lights begin to flash red. And so, that basically is uh, the sticking point and and the problem. All right. Well. Looks like we've got about uh, 14 minutes left in the program. If you have a question for my guest, please give a call. 895-2448 is the number to get in the studio. And I do have a call coming in, so we'll take a call from the public. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Hey, thanks, Doug. Great show. Thanks. So um, i got a question for your guest. Okay. And it would be, are we too late to get rid of the Federal Reserve and let the federal government issue and coin our money? I, I think we are. Um, number one, uh, the uh, idea of uh, an independent agency called the Fed uh, to manage the money supply is pretty uh, deeply ingrained in, in our history now and in, in the American psyche. And uh, number two, I think we've learned uh, both from our own uh, experience and the experience of other countries that if you turn uh, uh, the monetary printing press over to the politicians, um, they don't use it wisely. That the idea of a uh, central bank that takes its uh, mandate from the politicians and the public pursue uh, price stability and full employment, but a central bank that's independent in terms of the tactics that it uses uh, to pursue that mandate is, is a good thing. To me, though, it doesn't seem like it's working. And I think a lot of people feel that the Federal Reserve doesn't work. Well, people, uh, a lot of people feel that, but they don't uh, agree among themselves about um, the, the nature of the problem. Is the Fed not doing enough to support the economy, or is the Fed doing too much and therefore running the risk uh, of inflation? Uh, I think of um, an independent central bank like uh, Winston Churchill thought about democracy, the worst possible system, except for all the alternatives. Right. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for your call. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, uh, who does, uh, the, the Federal Reserve is always kind of a question. Who owns the Federal Reserve? And would you, would you agree with, say, Congressman Ron Paul, that it, it should at least be audited by Congress so there's a little bit more knowledge about what's going on at the Fed? Yeah, I, I, we, uh, the taxpayers, um, own the Fed, although it has its own budget, which is uh, separate from the federal government budget. But when the Fed makes a... Uh, a profit on its financial operations, it, it turns uh, those profits o- over to the Treasury. Um, does the Fed need to be more transparent uh, about its operations? Uh, I would agree mm-hmm. uh, that it does, and that it should be audited in, in, in terms of uh, its financial operations uh, in particular. The Fed can also do other things to be more transparent and, and above board uh, in terms of what it's doing and why. So uh, uh, Chairman Bernanke is now going to hold regular uh, press conferences. I think the first one will be next week where he will explain uh, exactly what he's doing. Uh, he goes up to Capitol Hill 
as you know, pretty regularly to, to testify and, again, to explain what the Fed is doing and why. All right, very good. We've got calls rolling in now, so I'll keep taking those. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Yes, yeah, so how does Bretton Woods relate to other groups such as Bilderbergers and uh, the folks who meet halfway between us in uh, Bohemian Grove down there near Guerneville? <laughs> and what was the effect of that meeting on the creation of the Federal Reserve? And also, if you could quickly explain to the audience how arbitrage basically bets against the grain of the economy to produce uh, artificial cash flow. Thank you very much for the program. Uh-huh. Thanks for the call. So the, the original Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 was the representatives of 44 governments. So we, the U.S., were represented by the Treasury Secretary and uh, um, similarly for other countries. The meeting that occurred uh, two weeks ago was um, uh, a collection of uh, professors, financial market types, uh, financial journalists, uh, and so forth. So um, certainly not as secretive as the people who meet at the uh, Bohemian Grove. You can go online right. and see the videos of, of uh, the sessions there and, and see lists of um, who attended. Uh, let's talk about other things, too, like the, the G20. And, uh, you know, when these, when, the, when these countries get together, what kind of deals are they making? Um, are they talking about... Uh, you know, currency manipulation or currency regulations or, you know, how, do the, how does that work when we're looking at these large international group meetings between countries, you know, specifically so, yeah, what they that, discuss? That is exactly uh, what they were talking about last weekend, the group of 20, when they met in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. wants to see China uh, uh, adopt a more flexible uh, exchange rate policy and wants to see China acknowledge that the fact that it's always exporting more than it imports in terms of, of merchandise mm -hmm. is uh, a, a problem for us and a problem for the, for the global economy. The Chinese don't want to uh, acknowledge that. So what happens at, at these meetings is uh, uh, countries get pushed uh, a little bit in the direction of compromise. So the Chinese agreed uh, last weekend to this set of indicators that um, uh, the International Monetary Fund would monitor and to the flashing uh, green and yellow and red lights for national economic policies. But they did not agree that uh, foreign exchange reserve accumulation, uh, where they're the main accumulator, would be one of these indicators. So uh, this kind of discussion goes on uh, behind the scenes once every couple of months. Uh, the group of 20 countries, uh, uh, assistant secretaries of finance or, or treasury secretaries meet in uh, different countries. And then a couple of times a year, uh, the, the treasury and finance ministers themselves or the, uh, the heads of state, uh, presidents and prime ministers meet, uh, as they did most recently in South Korea uh, in November, and uh, issue declarations, um, hold press conferences describing the modest steps they've taken toward agreement. 
It seems like, and one of the questions I had for you is, uh, you you talked a little bit, I, I've read, about a currency war. Um, is there a kind of a, uh, there seems to be a, a mass devaluation of all currencies across the board right now. Um, and it seems like uh, maybe the United States is trying to de devalue the dollar so that we can, our exports can become more uh, palatable to other countries and, and we can start to export more. Um, do you see that as going on? And, and also, this is related maybe to the, a third, if they do a third round of quantitative easing, which has been discussed a little bit, do you think that would be a mistake or is that uh, a possibility? Um, so the way I think about this is that the world economy has been, for the last uh, couple of years, been divided into two parts. The slowly growing part, which is uh, us and Japan and Europe, and the fast-growing part, which is China and Brazil and other uh, emerging markets. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to export more because our economy uh, is growing slowly and spending here has been stagnant. They need to spend more because their incomes have been going up and they've been growing wealthier. Uh, and one way to make that happen is uh, a more competitive lower dollar, which makes our exports uh, easier uh, for them to purchase, more attractive for them to purchase. So I, I think that kind of thing has been, been happening because growth has been fast in China and Brazil. They've had more inflation uh -huh. than we have. And uh, that, too, is, is part of the currency wars problem. Our economy has been weak. Um, Low interest rates have been appropriate for those circumstances, but their economies have been strong. They need higher interest rates, and that makes for a stronger Brazilian currency and a stronger Chinese currency on the one hand and a weaker dollar on the other. As for QE3, um, it all, all depends on uh, uh, economic growth, I think. Um, at the beginning of the year, people thought the U.S. economy would grow by about 3.5% this year, and everybody said, we don't need QE3 mm -hmm. under those circumstances. The economy can uh, take care of itself. It doesn't need to stay on life support from the Fed. But more recently, with the high oil prices and uh, uh, the problems in, in Europe and Japan, uh, forecasts of, of economic growth in the U.S. this year have been uh, downgraded to more on the order of 2% rather than 3.5%. So that makes QE3 a little bit more likely, in my view, but not much more likely. The political hurdles to the Fed doing more would be very high, so I, I don't think it's going to happen. All right, very good. We just have a few more minutes left in the program, so I'll take one more call here. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Do you have a question for my guest? I do. I'm wondering if your guest has seen the film The Secret of Oz and could, t if he has, or even if he hasn't, could talk about the, the, um, the, the periods, there have been periods in history in this country and other countries, well, since back, I guess, in Roman times, where the government has um, put money and has created money without a secondary bank involved where we wouldn't have any I mean we're creating money anyway but we're creating it with debt on us you know with the feds instead of creating it 
ourselves without debt. And I'm very inter- I've been wondering when somebody's going to bring this up and start talking about mm-hmm. it more publicly. Well, was that that movie was about how uh, the, uh, it was Oz was sort of a metaphor for the gold standard, is that in the Yellow Brick Road That's and all that? Right. Yeah. yeah the whole f- the the book was written around. It, the book was very different than the film, and it was very political. And everything in it is symboli- symbolizes something in the monetary system. The way I understand it, I'm not the best person to be speaking about this, but um, I wanted to call in because I've been eager to yeah, hear somebody so, talk um, about it. There, there are different interpretations. And, and the greenback, uh, like uh, the greenback, uh, the, the, the um, Emerald City was represented, the greenbacks that right. Lincoln put into circulation, and a lot of people think he was assassinated because of that, really. So. All, all right, man, let's let, uh, let him respond. Thank we only you. have a min- minute left here. Thanks. Thanks. So there are different interpretations uh, of what the book was about, but I'm pretty convinced by the idea that it was about um, the... Um, evils of the gold standard and, and about the desirability of um, a bimetallic standard where money was backed both by silver and gold. Oh, I see. Um, so in the, in the book, um, Dorothy wore um, uh, silver slippers, not ruby slippers. Um, the, um, uh, uh, all the characters represented uh, the principles in, in this debate, notably the wicked witch of the East was the Eastern bankers. Um, are we going to go back to a, a system like that? I think the answer is no. Um, to repeat what I kind of what I said before, fiat money, where money is backed only by debt by the, by the government it, it, itself, is not the, um, an ideal system, but I think we've learned over time that it works better than the alternatives. All right. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there, although we probably could talk about uh, the, the gold standard for another 20 minutes. <laughs> but, uh, Professor Eichengreen, I really appreciate the fact that you've been on the show and helped clarify some of these issues. They get very complex, and although they affect all of us, very few people really uh, understand them. So I, I'm glad that you came on and helped to enlighten us about that. Uh, if we're interested in uh, checking out some of your books, and especially the new one, Exorbitant Privilege, uh, where can we go? Um. Amazon is an obvious uh, go-to place, as is the, uh, the website of Oxford University Press. All right. Very good. Uh, thank you again for being on the program. I've been speaking with Professor Barry Eichengreen of University of California at Berkeley. His new book, Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar and the Future of the International Monetary System. The time is 10 o'clock. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. All right, and there you have it. That's the Thursday Morning Report for the 21st of April. Thank everyone for listening. It's now time. You've been listening right here on KZYX, 90.7 FM, Philo, KZYZ, 91.5 FM, Willits, and Ukiah. That's 88.1 FM, Fort Bragg. This is KZYX, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Thanks again for everyone who is listening and for all of those who called up and uh, helped make this show possible. I'll be back again in two weeks' time.